Good morning, everyone. It's uh, very good to be with you here this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to share God's word before you. Uh, it's not one I take lightly. And I uh, thank you also, Steve, for, for praying for me and for all your prayers. And um, it's good also that we've all just prayed during that song that our God might penetrate our heart and show us Jesus. And so let's hope that's the case this morning. This isn't actually the uh, first time I've preached this sermon. I actually preached it to a group of over 500 people um, just during the week. Um, but I must say, I felt like I did okay, but the, the response really wasn't very good. There was just no response at all. And I was, I was getting a bit discouraged by this, and so I was asking Jenna, um, why do you think it is? You know, 500 people there, I was preaching and, and no response. And then she said, well, it's because you were preaching in a graveyard, Jordan. And that's, that's how I prepare. <laughs> so I should get a better response than I got during the week. <laughs> it's my prayer anyway. Um, so the first thing I want to do this morning is just uh, share with you one of my, my loves. And I'm sure there'll be many of you that have the same love that I do. And it's a love for public holidays. And it's a very appropriate time to be sharing about this. You know, we've just had a great one on Monday. A couple more coming up um, in the coming week. And I love public holidays because the joy, it really starts the night before because you can actually stay up late. And then when the morning comes around, even if it's Monday morning, you can enjoy it. And you know, how often do you say, I'm enjoying Monday morning? But if it's a public holiday, you enjoy it. And uh, then you can just spend the day doing whatever you want. And um, I think one of the reasons I like public holidays so much is because I actually find myself... Um, being rewarded for the work that I put in. You know, when you, when you work hard through the week, through the year, and you finally get a public holiday, it's like a good reward. And I like the feel of that. You know, I toil away, I deal with teenagers every day, but throughout the year, there's these public holidays I can look forward to. And I rejoice in those. And I think, as people, very much, we're people that look forward to rewards. And God's wired us that way. We even looked at Hebrews 11:6 this morning. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And really, that's, that's going to be my main point this morning. Um, Jenna, I'll just get you to take the next slide. Just, we have rewards for continued faith. And I'd like to show you some of these rewards that are in store for you as you continue in your faith. And to do that, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, as you turn there, um, I'd just like to mention that in the book of Peter... Peter is addressing believers. Uh, he makes that clear in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so this morning, um, my message is very much going to be geared towards believers and encouraging you to continue in your faith. So, of course, if you're not a believer here this morning, the message you need to be hearing is you need to get a faith. You need to put your faith in Jesus so that it can continue and you can experience the rewards. So if you're an unbeliever here this morning, I pray that God might convict your heart and truly show you Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Now, without further ado, we'll read uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. My passage this morning is verses 4 to 10. I'm going to start just by reading verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And this brings me to my uh, first point, and Jen, I'll just get you to put that up for me. And the first point is that, can you read that? 
you're going to have to listen in. <laughs> Continued faith in Christ builds us into a community of priests. Continued faith in Christ builds us into a community of priests. And this is the first reward we're going to see for a continued faith. So let's look at the text, and at the start of verse 4, we see that very first phrase, as you come to him. This phrase is really significant, because it's saying, as you come to him. So it's not even really a command, so much as an expectation. If you are saved, you should be coming before God. You should be continuing in your faith. And the Bible gives no confidence to those who had a once-off faith experience, but their conduct and their day-to-day lives don't match that calling. And so, right here in the first phrase, we're outlining the importance of continued faith. Well, what does continued faith look like? Well, it's, it's very much like that initial faith. That initial faith, you place your trust in Jesus. Continued faith... You place your trust in Jesus every day. You make decisions that rely on Jesus every day. It involves communicating with the one who has saved you. So that's prayer, bringing your requests, bringing your praise before God. And it involves him communicating to you. You reading the word and having some times of silence where you can hear what the Spirit is revealing to you. And this is to be happening in an ongoing manner as you come to him. It's not just a command, it's an expectation of believers. And so I urge you this morning to continue in your faith. And I think verse 4 really makes a very nice introduction for this passage because everything is going to hinge on the fact that we're continuing in our faith. And as you read on in verse 4, um, you have a little bit of a roller coaster, I like to look at it, because you start looking at the living stone, which is referring to Christ, and so we can experience that high. But then it says rejected by men, which is obviously a huge low point but Christ is chosen by God and precious to him. So you get right back up to that high point as you dwell upon the relationship between the Son and the Father. And we'll look at that in more detail a little bit later. But what I want to do this morning, in urging you to continue in your faith, is highlight the rewards that come with that. And the first reward we're going to look at, as I mentioned, is that you're being built into a community of priests. Critical to understanding this is the phrase living stone. We have Jesus, the living stone, and we have Christians who are living stones. Understanding this, you need to recognise who Peter was. Peter was a fisherman who became an apostle of Christ and uh, he was inspired by the Spirit to write these words. At no point did he receive a higher education. So living stone, it's very much a mixed metaphor, but it's a divinely inspired mixed metaphor. So we have the living part, And we have the stone part. And you can consider them um, separately to an extent as we go through it. So Christ, he's a stone. We're going to see that he's a cornerstone, a stone of offence, a stone of stumbling. But he's also living. He's interceding. He's worthy of praise. He's active in his relationship with the Father. And so you have a, a stone section to look at and a living section to look at. And so it is with us as believers. Let me just read that first phrase in verse 5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. We could understand that phrase without the word living. You also, like stones, are being built into a spiritual house. That phrase itself makes sense just with the analogy of stones. 
a group of stones being built into a house. And what does that teach us? Well, two main things. Firstly, if the stones are being built, who's doing the building? Whoever the builder is has complete authority. He decides where the stones go. He puts them in place. The stones don't get a say. And that builder is the father. He's the one that is organising us. He's the one that gives us commands. And as stones, we just go where he sets. We are put where he places us. The other aspect to um, living stones, or just stones being built into a house, is very much this community idea. These stones are working together. They're not just a pile of stones doing nothing, or, or each individual stone going its own way. They're being worked together for a useful cause, to make a spiritual house. And so as believers, we need to recognise that we are a community of believers. We're a community of these stones. And while God is working in us individually, he's also working in us as a community. Um, and the other thing I love about verse 5 is uh, the grammatical tense. And I'm allowed to get geeky about grammar one time in the sermon. So um, verse 5, we have very much a present tense. So we are being built. It's happening to us right now. God is working on us. But it's ongoing. It's not a finished product. The house isn't built yet, which means God still has work on me and you and all of us as a community. So it's present tense, it's ongoing, but there is a future goal, the completion of the house. So we just rejoice that the work that God has started, he will complete. And so that's the idea of our believers being stones. The builder's in control, we're a community, and uh, God has a goal in mind for us. But as you keep reading in verse 5, I'm sure you noticed the, uh, the sudden change in the analogy. Let me just read verse 5 again. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, without really any segue, we go straight from being stones to being a priesthood. And this is part of that divinely inspired mixed metaphor. Uh, understanding priesthood, we need to understand the priest, which is reasonably hard to do, but I'll try and summarise Leviticus and Numbers into a paragraph for you. Basically, the priest was the way that an everyday person came to God. So back in the days of Moses and Aaron, if you're an everyday person and you want to uh, offer a sacrifice of praise or if you want to offer a sacrifice um, to confess your sin, you have to do that through the priest. And the priest has a certain role at the tabernacle that he'll do. But he helps you, as an ordinary person, see God. And so that idea follows through into us as believers being a holy priesthood. Now, traditional Protestantism certainly takes the view that if I'm a priest and you're a priest and every believer is a priest, then every believer can go before God directly. That's what the priest in the Old Testament did. The priest could go before God directly. Ordinary people had to come to the priest. But now we're all priests. We can all come before God directly. And we celebrate that. We celebrate that with um, when we first get saved. It's an individual, personal faith. And God saves us individually. We remember that um, even at communion, when we eat the bread individually. Remember that Christ works in us individually and forgives our sin individually. And we rejoice any time we pray before God. We rejoice that we can do that with direct access to the Father because of what the Son has done. We don't need to go through any earthly person. And I was reading a commentary from uh, John Calvin, one of the 
important uh, fathers of the Reformation. And he was absolutely harsh on the false teachers of the day, the false teachers of that day coming from the Catholic Church. Because the Catholic Church was saying, come to God, but you have to go through the Pope. Come to God, but you have to go through the Church. And Calvin, rightly so, was criticising them, saying, if every believer is a priest, they can come before God directly because of what Christ has done. They don't need to go through anyone else. And so we rejoice in the truth that as priests, we can come before God individually. But as I was uh, meditating on this verse, I think there's actually something more to this priesthood idea. It's not just about us coming before God individually. You see, we're a community. We're in the middle of this mixed metaphor where we're living stones. And the stones are being built into a house. They're working together as a community to be built into a house. So whatever the living stones are doing, they're doing together. And so when we go straight from that analogy to the priesthood analogy, I think the community aspect follows through. Bear with me. As I've already mentioned, as individuals we can come before God directly because of what Christ has done. That's how we're saved, that's how God works in us individually. But here's the thing. If I'm a priest and you are a priest, I can perform priestly roles on you and you can perform priestly roles on me. So what do I mean by that? If I wanted to, and hopefully this would be my desire, I could come before a trusted uh, brother or sister in Christ, probably a trusted brother, and I could um, communicate the real personal things that are happening to me. I could communicate my prayer needs and my brother could pray for me. And as he does that, he's acting as a priest on my behalf. He's representing my request to God. Or I could come before my brother, and, and like James says, I could confess my sins to him. And then he could read the word to me and say, God forgives those who are repentant. And thus, he could be acting as a priest on my behalf. And the advantage of that is, as a community, we can build one another up as well as bring glory to God. When we help each other out as priests, we're understanding a little bit more of what God had in mind when he says that we're a community. And so I think we need to recognise who God is. God is community. He's three in one. He's the Father, the Spirit and the Son. And he said it's not good for man to be alone. And so the fact that we're all given this amazing privilege of being priests, I think we should be looking at it in a way as, yes, we can come before God directly, but yes, we can also use our priesthood to be a blessing to other people. And when two priests, two believers are getting together and having that relationship where they share their personal struggles, where they share their prayer points and their sins and they recognise how good God is, what happens? Well, the, the two people are encouraged and built up. God is glorified. The people get a greater sense of shame from sin and therefore a greater desire to steer away from it and a greater appreciation of forgiveness, and a greater desire to forgive others as they have been forgiven. And so if we work as a community of priests, we can greater experience the blessings of what God had in mind. And so I challenge you this morning um, to think of just one person that you can come with and, and pray with and share with and be a priest and represent them to God. And I think when we do that, We'll be tasting the rewards of what God had in mind. As we continue in our faith, we're being built up into a community of priests. I like to think of um, Aaron, the great high priest. He had a huge role. He had to represent the whole people of Israel to God. 
Or you can think of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. His sacrifice was sufficient for the sins of the entire world. And if you're a believer in Christ this morning, you are a priest. So why should your priesthood only serve yourself? So let's remember that we are community. At the end of uh, verse 5, we see that um, these priests, these believers, are to be offering spiritual sacrifices. Now, I define a sacrifice as giving up something of value to gain something of greater value. So you look at the Old Testament Hebrews, they would give up an animal and they would gain peace with God. Okay? Today, what are we willing to give up that we may gain Jesus and know him? Are we willing to give up um, the illusion that we have it all together? Our comfort zone? Our uh, security in ourselves? And these are hard things to give up. I'm not saying we should do it with all people, just a trusted brother or sister. But if we can do that, if we can give something up, we can gain a greater reward, that reward of being built into a community of priests. And we rejoice as we read the end of verse 5 that all of this is done through Jesus Christ. That even though we're going to stuff up and even though our best intentions are not going to match it with what God desires, Christ intercedes on our behalf and he presents our request before God anyway. So even as we're acting as priests for ourselves or for other people, Christ is acting as a priest for us and we can rejoice in that. And so I encourage you, continue in your faith by being built into a community of priests. And this brings me uh, to my next uh, reward. Continue in your faith by being unashamed. So continued faith in Christ makes you unashamed. Now that one word unashamed is going to have a lot of connotations. Let's read verses 6 to 8 to uh, get the picture. Starting at verse 6. For in scripture it says... See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. And so what Peter does at the start of verse 6 is uh, he shares a common trait with me and that is he delights in the Old Testament. And he says, for in scripture it says, or it stands, or this is proclaimed by scripture. And, and we take that seriously. At New Community Church we rejoice in the scriptures. What we have here is not just a book, it's the word of God. It's God communicating to us. And so we don't take that lightly and um, we, we pray about that and we recognise how serious it is that God has presented his words to us. And Peter had the same attitude as he looked at the word, um, which is the Old Testament in his day. And so we read the quotation, this quotation is from Isaiah 28, and it starts with the word see or behold. And again, this is God speaking. And so when God tells us to see, we look at what he's telling us to see. When God says behold, we shift our focus onto what he's saying behold. What are we beholding? I lay a stone in Zion. And so right here we have um, the father's uh, plan, if you will, and his plan was to lay a stone in Zion. And I'm sure you can recognise that that stone is Jesus Christ. And Zion is representative of, of Jerusalem. Now, the significance of Jerusalem is debated amongst commentators. Um, some would say, Zion, Jerusalem, that's the location of the second temple. 
That's pretty significant. And well, I agree that that's significant, but contextually I think that's not quite what the passage is getting at. When the passage says, I lay a stone in Zion, we need to remember what significant event happened in Zion. What significant event happened in Jerusalem? The death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's the foundation that our salvation is upon. And so when it refers to laying a stone in Zion, I very much think it's referring to the gospel. Jesus dying and being raised from the dead. And we continue reading in verse 6. A chosen and precious cornerstone. To understand how precious Jesus is, uh, it's a lifelong journey. And when I say lifelong, I mean your eternal life as well. It's really hard to grasp how precious Jesus is. Um, I'm going to try and do so uh, by mentioning the Trinity, because the Trinity is a really important Christian doctrine as well. So as a church, we believe in the Trinity. And what is that? Well, we believe in one God, three persons. So the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are separate persons, with separate identities and separate roles. But they're all God. And we say we worship one God because these three persons are so united and so joyous and so happy in their relationship that they all constitute one God. And the unity is so strong that we worship one God, despite there being three persons. And you need to recognise this because um, Jesus is a separate person from the Father. If Jesus was the same person as the Father, then if he's chosen and precious, that means God saying, I chose myself and I'm precious. So we have separate persons, one Godhead. And this is not the same as saying we have lots of gods. If you have lots of gods, they're going to outrank each other. But in the Trinity, equal rank. If you have lots of gods, they're going to fight and, and be nasty to each other. But with Trinity, it's nothing but love, harmony, perfect oneness, one God. And so this is a glimpse into the precious nature of Christ. He is precious, first and foremost, to the Father and also the Spirit. He has been precious for eternity past. The Father, the Son and the Spirit have been experiencing this joy, this blessed relationship, this preciousness before any human was even made. And that's really intriguing to grasp because it's argued today by some philosophers that you can't have happiness without sadness. Yet, for eternity past, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit were experiencing nothing but blessed happiness with no sadness. And so we, we get a glimpse of the precious nature of Jesus. Jesus was also chosen, as I mentioned. Chosen, he had a separate role, the Father had a plan, and Jesus had a part in that plan. And that plan was to redeem the world by coming, living a perfect life, dying on the cross, being raised from the dead, ascending to heaven, and coming back soon to reign. And that all encompasses the gospel, that encompasses the Father's plan that he had for Jesus to redeem the world. And Jesus willingly went along with that. When we think about that plan, what Jesus did, as we thought about at communion, as we've thought about, as we've uh, sung our songs, we rejoice, and rightly so, because how precious is it that Jesus has, has died and risen again, that because of what he's done, we have salvation in him. And so we rightly rejoice in that. And I encourage you to keep doing so. But I'd also like to point out that Jesus is precious not just for what he's done, but for who he is. Because Jesus is God. Jesus is the one worthy of opening the scrolls. 
Jesus is the one who has delighted his Father even before he came into the world to die for the world. And so we rejoice in Jesus because of what he's done and because of what he is. And we find him precious. When we find Jesus precious, when we truly value Jesus, even as we were just singing, when I know you, when I truly know you, there's, there's nothing that thrills our soul like that. And I think when we find him precious, when we're having that communion with him and rejoicing in that and uh, really experiencing the, the blessedness of a, a relationship with our Saviour, when we find Jesus precious, the rest of verse 6 makes sense. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. You see, when I first started understanding this passage, I kept trying to understand the shame, the unashamed nature. How are we not ashamed? There's a lot of things that make me ashamed, especially regarding Christ and how willing I am to share. Where I was trying to get my head around it, but I think the key to that is how precious is Jesus. Because if Jesus is truly precious, we will be unashamed. And the implication of that, which is convicting for me, is that if we're a little bit ashamed of Jesus, it indicates that we don't value him as highly as we ought. And we need to uh, wrestle with that and ask for the Spirit's help that we may truly see Christ for who he is and find him precious. And when we do that, we will be unashamed. Think of a parent. Most parents I know are big fans of their kids. They, they love their kids. And you, you talk to them, you ask them about their kids, and they're going to share about them and the, the joys they have and the latest details and you know, nothing being held back. They're unashamed of their kids. They're happily sharing. But the reason they do so is because they find their kids so precious. And so I pray we have the same attitude towards Christ, that we may find him so precious that we're unashamed. When we, um, when we dwell on ourselves and our shame, it, it can really bring us down. So I'd like to point our attention back to the cornerstone, back to Jesus, the foundation that our life is on. See, we rejoice that our faith is in Christ. And you may not have thought about it at first, but the, the cornerstone idea, the cornerstone being uh, the foundation stone, the most important stone. If that stone wasn't there, the building would fall down. Okay, and that refers to the church, because Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of this church. And if Christ isn't there, this place falls apart. And it's also true of us uh, individually, with our salvation, with our relationship with God. Christ is central. Christ is the key. He's the foundation. If he's not there, everything else falls apart. Implicit in that idea is the nature of um, continuing. If you put a cornerstone down, it's going to stay there. And if you put a house on it, it's going to stay there because the cornerstone stays there. There's this idea of uh, permanency. And it's that idea of permanency that I'd like us to rejoice in now because if you have faith in Christ, a continued faith in Christ... Your faith isn't going anywhere. It's on the unshakable, unmovable Jesus Christ. And because of that, no matter how weak your faith is, if it's in Jesus, it will endure until the end. And we rejoice in that. Because it's not about how strong or how weak our faith is. It's about who our faith is in. And if it's in Christ, we're secure because he's the cornerstone. And so we rejoice in that. And so that's how it is for the believer. And that's what verse 6 is highlighting here, uh, the rewards of continued faith being unashamed. We'll just take a quick look uh, in verses 7 and 8 at the uh, unbeliever. 
And it's a bit of a, a downward turn, I agree, but the unbeliever does not see a precious cornerstone. And verses 7 and 8 make it clear what they are seeing is a stumbling stone, a rock of offence. Quite literally, Jesus offends them. And just thinking about it, there's, there's several ways Jesus offends people. Um, he offends people by his claim of death and resurrection. The unbeliever says, why would you celebrate someone's death? That is just ridiculous. Whereas we truly know what sacrifice took place and what it means. And the unbeliever says, resurrection, that idea is fanciful. It's unscientific. People must have been stupid back then. But we know the truth, that the resurrection occurred and because of that we have a hope. And so the very thing we rejoice in and find precious, the unbeliever stumbles over. I mean, the unbeliever stumbles over Jesus' claim of uh, exclusivity. Jesus is the only way to the Father. We rejoice in that. The Father has made a way of salvation and we can partake in that by believing in Christ. The unbeliever says only one way to heaven? That's ridiculous. That can't be right. That's just narrow-minded. And so they're offended by it and they stumble over it. But we rejoice in it. And you also have Jesus' claim of authority. In Australia, we're very good at being offended and not liking authority. And it's the same with the unbeliever. They'll hear that Jesus has authority, that Jesus is coming to reign and to judge, and they'll say, no, no, that can't be right. That's too much power. That, that's just, no, we're not accepting that. But of course, those people don't know Jesus, and we do. And we delight that someone so wise and loving and just will be on the throne to put all things right. And so we have this contrast of unbelievers stumbling because of their disobedience and uh, those believers rejoicing in the truth of who Jesus is. And so as we uh, move on to our last point, we remember that continued faith in Christ results us being built into a community of priests. And continued faith in Christ makes us unashamed. Read with me please verses 9 and 10 and we'll see that continued faith in Christ embraces a new identity of worship. Continued faith in Christ embraces a new identity of worship. Verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So I've said uh, the, the last reward that we rejoice in is our new identity of worship. And I think the biggest application we can take from this is we should be worshipping God. We should be worshipping Jesus. And because that's the application that's there at the end of verse 9, I recommend that we view verses 9 and 10 uh, through the following lens. We'll say, this is what we used to be, this is what we are now, praise God. And we can do that several times as we think about each of the new identities mentioned. So let's start with the first one, a chosen people. A chosen people. Now it should come as no surprise to you that Peter is a big fan of the Old Testament. He's already mentioned the priesthood idea. He's put in some quotes from Isaiah and Psalms. And again, he's referring back to an Old Testament idea. He's saying that all believers are chosen. All believers are a chosen people. But who are the original chosen people? The Jews. And so by mentioning this, he's making reference back to the Jews. And uh, to make sense of this and to get our, our priorities of praise right, I'm just going to turn back to Deuteronomy 7. You can turn there if you wish. 
And in Deuteronomy 7, uh, what's happening is God is speaking to his people. He's speaking to his chosen people, the Jews. And this is what he says. I'll just read there, verse 7 and a bit of verse 8. God speaking to the Jews. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers. I'd just like to uh, take that and apply it to us today. And if I was to apply that to us today as a body of believers, as a chosen people, it might sound something like this. The Lord did not set his affection on you, believers. He did not choose you because you were good or because you were able to please him. For you were not able to please him and you were not good in any way. But it was because the Lord loved you and he kept a promise to always have a remnant. What's the big idea here with the chosen people? The big idea is that God is doing the choosing. The big idea is when we're unsaved, there's nothing good in us which will cause God to save us. God doesn't look at the world and say, oh, that person's pretty good, I'll save him. God chooses who he chooses. And when he chooses, it's just a demonstration of his love that we rejoice in. And so the beautiful thing about remembering that we are a chosen people is that the praise should go to God because God demonstrates his love um, by choosing us. And the praise does not go to us because we are sinful. We were not chosen because of some reason in and of ourselves. The Jews weren't chosen because they were a big people. They were chosen because of God's love, Deuteronomy 7, 8. What does that cause us to do? Well, we look at who we were. We weren't chosen. We had no purpose. We look at who we are now. We're chosen and loved by God and we praise God. So we'll look at the next new identity, a royal priesthood. And with the idea of a royal priesthood, uh, I guess I've already mentioned it before as we looked at the priesthood of all believers. So we rejoice that we can now come before God directly. And, and when you view it through that lens of what was I, what am I now, when I was unsaved, I could not come before God directly. I was so tainted with sin, I couldn't come into his presence. Now, not only can I come into his presence because of Christ, but I can um, come before other believers and bring their prayer requests to God because of Christ. And they can do the same for me. What a reward. We have gone from being unable to come before God to being able to come before God for any host of reasons. And we rejoice in that and give God the glory for what he has done. And you may have noticed Peter squeezing another word in there, the word royal. Royal obviously means uh, royalty. We're sons and daughters of the king. And so look at what we once were. We had no rank. And yet now we're sons and daughters of the king. What does this cause us to do? Praise God, because he is the one who has saved us. We'll move on to the next uh, new identity, and that's a holy nation. And this is a good concept. Again, it's an uh, Old Testament idea. Who was the original holy nation? Well, the nation of Israel. They were a nation with a government, and their job was to represent God to the world. Now, if I can summarize the Old Testament, God said to the nation of Israel, you represent me to the nations, and those nations will see you, and by seeing you, they'll praise God. The nation of Israel was representing God. How did they go? Not very well. They, they failed. That's, there's glimpses of hope, but they, they ultimately failed. They did not represent God well. 
Even though they were a holy nation, even though they were set apart for that purpose, they didn't represent God well. And so the implications for us are are quite obvious. If we are a holy nation, and God is saying right here as believers, we're a holy nation, what does that mean for us in terms of how we represent God to the world? How are we going in showing unbelievers how good God is? Can they look at our lives and even notice a difference? And can they notice a positive difference that makes them want to worship their God and maker? And so it's a a good thing to ponder as we uh, think about who we might witness to. And we might witness because we're unashamed. But we're a holy nation and we're called to show other people how good God is, that they too might become part of this holy nation. Again, though, this is cause for praise. Look at who we were. We didn't have any set purpose as sinners, as lost people, as sheep without a shepherd. Now, we are part of a nation with God as our head. And so we rejoice and we give God the glory. And uh, the last new identity in verse 9 is that you may, oh sorry, is a people belonging to God. A people belonging to God. A people of God's own possession. Unbelievers are going to struggle to like this. A people belonging to God. If you don't know God, then of course, why would you want to belong to him? Why would you want to be someone's possession? I, I can understand if you don't know God why that sounds like a bad thing. But take it from someone who does know God, it's a delight to be God's possession. He's a good master and serving him is incredible. Because not only are we his servants, but we're also in his family as sons. And so God gives us way more honour than we deserve. And he's the best kind of master there is. And so we delight in being his possession. And it motivates us to serve him. And and we're motivated to serve him, not that we earn favour with him. Remember, we're chosen not because of the favour of ourselves. So we're motivated to serve God because of what God has done. Salvation's been earned. It's been earned by Christ. And so we rejoice in that and serve God out of gratitude and out of love. Just a point I should mention here. Um, and it does tie in with what Steve was mentioning earlier. All of these things are, require faith. All of these things require us to see what God sees. And faith isn't, faith isn't um, believing something crazy and rejecting something that's good. That's not what faith is. Faith is seeing with God's eyes. Faith is God changing us so that we can see what's real. And when God does that, then we can look back and say, we were blind. And faith is necessary for us to enjoy these rewards as we embrace these new identities. And so as we share with unbelievers, we need to pray that they have faith. Because no matter how logical our arguments are, and they are, and no matter how historically accurate our facts are, and they are, people need faith to see Christ. And so we pray that flesh and blood won't reveal it to them, but our Father in heaven. And so we have those four new identities in verse 9, causing us to worship God. As we see what we were, we see what we are, we worship God. And then that brings us to verse 10. And uh, whenever you read scripture, it's a good idea to ask yourself, why is that verse there? I I did that with verse 10 as I was preparing this message. Why is verse 10 there? Because you look at it and it's really just repeating the same idea. It's really just mentioning some of those new identities again. So it looks at first glance that it's just repetition. But that's the point. This is an important idea. This is our new identity in Christ. And this is causing us to worship God. 
And so, yes, mention it again. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Praise God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Praise God. And so this is an incredibly important idea. And I think what Peter has done in repeating it is lay down a a good principle that we can adopt for our own lives. And that's simply to repeat the gospel to ourselves every day. Let's just remind ourselves of who we were every day, of who we are now every day. And if we do that, if we keep saying to ourselves, look at what I once was, look at what I am now, then it's going to foster an attitude of praise. We're going to praise God automatically if we keep preaching the gospel to ourselves every day and repeating ourselves. And so don't dismiss this notion of repetition because we're a very forgetful people and it's so easy for us to lose sight of what's important as we go through our daily lives. Repeat the gospel to yourself. Look at who you were and who you are now and praise God. And the the rewards will be very clear. And so in conclusion this morning, I'd like to encourage you to continue in your faith. So continue in your faith because you have the reward of being built into a community of priests. And continue in your faith because if you do so, you'll be unashamed in Christ. And continue in your faith as you embrace that new identity of worship. And before I close, I'd just like to ask some rhetorical questions to make sure our minds are fixed on that which is important. And I'll let you answer them. They're not hard in your heads. Who is it? Who is the Son of God? Who is it who is the living stone? Who is it who sets the example for us as great high priest? Who is it who intercedes on our behalf and presents our request before the Father? Who is it who makes sure our sacrifices are worthy? Who is it who died and rose again? Who is it who was chosen by the Father for the purpose of salvation? Who is it who is precious to the Father and always has been precious? Who is it who ought to be precious to us? And who is it who makes us unashamed? And who is it who is worthy of our praise, all our praise? Who is it who has made us a chosen people? Who is it who has shown us mercy when once we had no mercy? And I'm sure you can see what I'm getting at here. So I'm praying that you're not just going to be continuing in your faith and you're not just going to be seeing the rewards of a continued faith, but that you'll truly see Christ and know him to be precious. Thank you for your time this morning.